Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Sydney Ideas and tonight's debate on a complex and topical question. Do we need male champions of change to accelerate gender equality? I'm Professor Trevor Hambly, Dean of Science, and the Sydney SAGE, which stands for Science Australia Gender Equity, Equality, self-assessment team at, at the University of Sydney. Uh, before we begin, I would like to invite uh, Professor Shane Houston, our Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Indigenous Strategy and Services, uh, to provide tonight's acknowledgement of country. Shane. Um, thank you, Trevor. Um, some people ask me why I like to do acknowledgements of country. Because I, and, and let me tell you, because it's important that we all, I believe, understand what they really meant to be. You know, some people might try and tell you that in the 1980s, in a movement of fever of political correctness, we decided that acknowledging country was something that we should do. Well, in fact, it wasn't. It was something that's been going on in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, if you believe the literature in nature and science, and I think it goes back much later than that, for about 62,000 years. We have been acknowledging traditional custodianship of land when we come into people's country, and people on whose country we, we move have been welcoming us to their land. So here at the University of Sydney, we're reminded almost daily that the Mizzenden Road Ridge behind us was the, roughly the border between Wangal peoples on that side and Gadigal people on this side. And that the more we look and think about the relationship between Wangal and Gadigal people, we know that not much further down the road here towards the intersection of um, what is now City Road, and I might point out that that was actually a track made by Aboriginal people over many thousands of years, as was George Street, Princess Highway and Parramatta Road. But just down there was a trading site. So people would come across this ridge, acknowledge country and be welcomed. And what was important about that act, it, it wasn't just a simple transaction as you might experience at a modern border post. It was actually an acknowledgement of responsibility. In Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lives and culture, there are three very important features of responsibility. The first of those is responsibility in the human world, to our families, to our kin, to people that we travel with. We also have an important responsibility in the physical world, in our relationship to plants, animals, water, air, land. And we also have an important responsibility in the spiritual world, the notion of our values and how these values manifest themselves in ways that respect the other two domains. So when we offer an acknowledgement of country, it's just not about some politically correct notion. It is an offer by someone like me on our behalf, our shared behalf, to pick up those responsibilities in the human world to each other, to the physical world, to the land and the air and the water, and to the values that we should hold as Australians. And we are saying we will honour these as we step onto Gadigal land. On behalf of us all, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Their lands were bordered, Eora was bordered by three rivers, well, it's really two, Hawkesbury, the Nepean and the Georges River and they have stewarded this land in the spirit 
and the people on it for thousands of years, and we too pick up those responsibilities to care for each other, to care for our country, and to live our values. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Houston. Um, I too would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as the custodians of this land. Um, as many of you will know, delivering gender equality in the workplace is far more complex than it seems at face value. We've been trying to do it for many years, and yet progress um, seems to be glacially slow at times. At Sydney, we're now focused on delivering cultural and systemic change to shift the dial to increase gender equality in the STEM areas, for those that don't know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine, and also more broadly for all staff and students at Sydney. We have visibly integrated gender equality into our strategic planning uh, to accelerate the pace of change after years of having good, good intentions, uh, best practice policy, we believe, and attracting great talent but with mixed experience in terms of enabling this talent to thrive in the university. Over recent times, uh, my own eyes have been opened through listening to Elizabeth Broderick and through observing the commitment of the Australian male champions of change. Uh, this experience has made me reflect and think about the role of men uh, in delivering real change and gender equality at Sydney to provide an environment where all our staff and all of our students can uh, thrive and do their best work in a diverse community. It's imperative that men are actively engaged. As I've hinted, uh, achieving gender e equality is going to take a lot of work. The real risk, a real risk with this, is that if that work falls on the shoulders of women predominantly, then we will actually impede, we could impede uh, progress. So it's imperative that men are actively engaged and the male champions of change advocacy model appears to have applicability in the corporate sector, uh, but is it applicable broadly in our universities and to our community? And do men need to do more than advocacy and change how they work? Tonight we're going to explore these important questions and like you, I'm looking forward to hearing from our panel of experts on what we as men uh, need to do. I'm now delighted uh, to invite our debate moderator, Greg Marnie. Uh, Greg has very kindly agreed to step in at the last, last moment uh, because Adam Spencer uh, was not able to join us due to illness. Uh, Greg, if you would join us. Uh, Greg is a Sydney-based barrister. He's a Rhodes Scholar and a former university uh, debating champion who's been a regular fixture on ABC Radio and Sky News, commentating on Australian sport and politics. He's been a weekly columnist for the Sunday Telegraph. He graduated from the University of Sydney uh, with first-class honours in law and English literature before studying at Oxford, where he was awarded the Oxford Prize for Human Rights and completed a PhD in white-collar crime. He's the current secretary of the Rhodes Trust in New South Wales and worked as an associate to the Chief Justice of Australia, the Honourable Murray Gleeson, AC. I now invite Greg to come and act as debate moderator. Thank you. Thank you very much for that warm introduction, Trevor, and uh, good evening, everyone. It's an absolute pleasure to be um, stepping into the enormous shoes of Adam Spencer at the last minute. For those of you who are concerned, Adam is a dear friend of mine. He's come down with a shocking uh, gout of bastro, gastro even, uh, after um, 
a dinner at a Thai restaurant in Newtown last night. And um, that doesn't narrow the suspects in terms of uh, re restaurants. But um, I should say that, that, like Adam, I studied arts at the University of Sydney. I know that Adam describes that experience as the best 11 and a half years of his life. Um, and it's a shame he's not here to defend himself uh, th this afternoon. On to matters much more serious, ladies and gentlemen. We are about to convene the House to debate the topic that we need male champions of change to accelerate gender equality. Um, it is a hall that I'm sure many of you are aware is steeped in tradition and is one of Australia's proudest and most distinguished of debating halls in this country. Multiple prime ministers, foreign leaders, so on and so forth have, have debated um, in this august surround and it's, it really is a great pleasure to invite six incredible Australians to the stage to debate this topic uh, in, in a moment. I'll call them up to the stage and say a few words, further words of introduction. On the affirmative side this evening, affirming that topic, we have um, recently announced Australian of the Year, David Morrison, if you would mind making your way to the stage. Associate Professor Parisa Aslani. Professor Deborah Schofield. And on the negative side, we have Dr. Elizabeth Hill, Miss Anna Hush, and Associate Professor Michael Flood. I'll ask you to just make your way to the, the chairs to my left. Um, a, a, a couple of points that I'd like to make to put this debate in some sort of historical context. I mentioned that we are in a place that has seen no shortage of debates over the years. So I'm happy to tell you, this is the first time in 88 years that a debate has occurred in this great hall more than 100 metres from a standing jacaranda tree. <laughs> there, there, there used to be, I'm told by Adam and some of his elders, a tradition in Sydney Uni debating that the losing team on any Wednesday Union night debate in the great hall had to climb the jacaranda tree in the, in the main quad. Now, that's going to be difficult, let's be honest, um, this evening. What we have done is attach some ropes to the home building, and um, we're very much looking forward to seeing the, the, the losing team having a crack at those this evening. Also, I'd like to say this, that the timing for this debate couldn't be more significant. I note, for example, that as we speak, um, in McLaurin Hall, only 100 metres from here, the visiting Australia ambassador to the United States, Mr. Joe Hockey, is giving an address. I'm told he is giving that address in, fr in front of a range of luminaries from here and overseas. They include um, the current American ambassador to Australia, two former leaders of various uh, states in the United States, and a former Italian president by the name of Silvio Berlusconi. Um, th those of you who have seen the security around the grounds at the moment will be um, interested to know that that's, why it, that that's why there is so much security here. No disrespect to our current panel. <laughs> and the other thing I'd like to say about um, the timeliness of this debate is this, that those of you who are not sure um, or, or not aware of it, we are in the middle of, um, uh, of a fairly uh, volatile time in the space that we are about to debate. And I might... Um, just for a minute, quote, the great modern American thinker, philosopher, and feminist, Donald Trump, uh, 
who said on the topic of feminism, and I'm quoting, you couldn't make this up, only three weeks ago, quote unquote, feminism has, is a movement that has had no work to do and indeed has been looking for things to do since women were given the vote. It, it, it's a comment like that that makes me wish um, everyone in this room could vote. Um, sadly, <laughs> you can, but only on this afternoon's debate. And um, without further ado, one thing I've been asked to do before convening and asking to, to come to the stage, the first speaker, is to get an initial show of hands. Uh, we are going to have an initial show of hands of those, uh, how people feel about the motion. And we're going to have a, in, in, I guess, in the rich tradition of um, the Channel 9 worm, after the debate, we're going to have a follow-up show of hands to see who's been persuaded. So if I could ask those of you who believe that we do need male champions of change to accelerate gender equality, if you could just gently raise a right hand into the air at the moment. It's going to be a close debate. Um, don't be too intimidated, members of the negative team. And, and those who believe that in the interests of accelerating gender equality, we don't need um, male champions of change. All right, well, we have... Um, it's not an insignificant minority at the outset. <laughs> if I could, um, without further ado, call to the stage the first speaker for the affirmative, affirming the proposition that, um, that I just relayed. Her name is Professor Deborah Schofield. She needs no introduction at all. She is uh, one of this country's great public intellectuals and intellectuals full stop. She's currently chair of health economics at the Faculty of Pharmacy at this university. She's the Murdoch, Murdoch Children's Research Institute and Garvin Institute of Medical Research chair. She has headed up a team that has done more economic modeling um, in relation to the impacts of illness and health interventions in this country than almost any other team at any other university. As I say, she needs no introduction. It is a great pleasure to invite to the stage Professor Deborah Schofield. When William Wentworth proposed the idea of Australia's first university in 1850, he imagined the opportunity for the child of every class to become great and useful in the destinies of this country. And according to our website, we have stayed true to those ideals and purpose by promoting inclusion and diversity for 160 years. But I ask you, have we? They say a picture paints a thousand words. So I'm going to let the pictures on these walls tell the story about the University of Sydney. And not just the pictures, the two statues at the back. Perhaps unwittingly, these artists captured the systematic isolation, exclusion, and eradication of potential female leadership for over 150 years. We have one sole woman on the wall. What a waste. Was this unconscious bias? May I suggest that sitting in this hall, one would indeed have to be unconscious. In fact, comatose, not to notice that half the human race is missing. Our university prides itself on being the first to enrol women in medicine in this country. In 1881, the Senate was unanimous in their vote that women should be allowed entry to this university. But the Dean of Medicine did not agree 
He was vocal in his opposition to women in medicine and said that they were unsuited to its study. So when Dagmar Byrne came along as the sole woman in the third entry year for medicine, she faced such hostility that she ended up completing her studies in Edinburgh. This example demonstrates two things. Not only do we need male leadership and champions of change at the top, we need it at every level. And we also need, along with them, we need brave women, women who will pioneer a pathway for others to follow, no matter how circuitous that path may be. Male champions speak up when it matters. They take action even in the face of opposition. And they have learnt the gentle art of opening doors. Opening doors for women and saying welcome. Welcome to my office. Welcome to the doors of, through the doors of the boardroom. And welcome to the doors of the world stage. And more importantly is what they are not. They are not self-serving. They are not silent in the face of injustice. And they do not exhibit that dark triad entitlement, grandiosity, and lack of empathy. Many of us had recently heard Michelle Obama's courageous speech about exploitation of women and their bodies. But today, we're talking not about the exploitation of women's bodies, but of their minds. And at this university, women, their aspirations, their thoughts, and their academic endeavors have been trivialized and marginalized all too often used to bolster the careers of others. Many of us can tell of occasions when we have sat and heard our work presented by others with no recognition that it was our own. We have been pressured and coerced, coerced into gifting authorship, typically to older men who've made no contribution to the paper. We've seen our research grants disappearing into the coffers of others to bolster their interests. And some of us have been invited to meetings only to find that our voices were unwelcome, our ideas were repeated back to us as though they were not our own. We were routinely skipped sometimes at meetings and even worse still to our faces, I recall being told there was no need to contribute because I was young and wore a skirt. And I wasn't that young, I was in my 40s. And when we duck and weave and work all the harder to forge a career, I know that some of us had faced endless roadblocks, creations of artificial administrative hurdles, some of them so, so bizarre that they are hard to believe. But after 160 years, what I would like to say is that we have failed to live up to our values. And although there are indeed many good men amongst us, men who I've enjoyed working with us, this isn't enough. The British philosopher John Stuart Mill said, bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. So we're talking here about a much braver and rarer person than a merely good man. Oops. So what we need are champions, men who stand up to be encountered when injustice is rampant. We need people who understand that what we do is not put people down if we're leaders, we lift them up. But also we need remarkably strong women, women who are pioneers of our institutions. These women have enormous stamina 
a dogged determination to survive, endless enthusiasm and unbridled optimism. They have the resilience to take knockbacks time and time again and yet be ready to rise to the occasion when the opportunity presents itself. It's time for women too, not just men, to speak up and to shine a strong light into the darkest corners of our university where injustice thrives. To make change and to do it rapidly, I believe we need male champions, not just at the top, but at every level of leadership. And we need women who are prepared to pioneer territory that even in 2016 is often a leadership position never before held by a woman. And these must be women of integrity who will foster other women who will say, I've done it before you and you can do it too. Thank you very much for that um, enlightening speech, uh, uh, Deborah. And I've got to say, the, um, the very relaxing ringtone was a wonderful touch. Um, <laughs> the, um, I, I was just prompted by the, the observation, the incredible observation about the, the, the faces and the portraits surrounding us to do a little bit of research, um, given we are in the presence of an Australian of the Year, um, as to the, the, the background of that award. And um, it is interesting. Um, I think if we had a pictorial um, reflection of the, uh, the, the history of the Australian of the Year Award since 1960, um, it wouldn't look uh, that much dissimilar. We might hear a little bit uh, about that later. Our first speaker tonight for the negative team is Dr Elizabeth Hill. She is a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Economy at this university. Uh, her research, which is world-renowned, uh, focuses on gender, work and care in both developed and emerging economies. She is widely published, including works on the Indian informal economy, as well as a number of works on the Australian economy, including the place of women, uh, family, and family policy within it. Um, she is a leading, or a thought leader in this space, and it's a great pleasure to invite her to the stage. Please welcome Dr. Elizabeth Hill. Thank you for that introduction. Well, it's not every day of the week that you find yourself debating an Australian of the Year, um, nor one whose work on gender inequality I really respect. Um, so it's an unusual situation, but in the interests of robust debate, I decided that I will press on. So um, in order to evaluate the capacity of the male champions of change to deliver gender equality, I think we need to position the program or the approach within the broader Australian political economy. So that's my task, to set the scene. So we do know a lot, actually, about the dynamics and dimensions of gender inequality in Australia. We know that Australian women are better trained and educated than ever before. We know that they are outperforming boys at schools and men at our universities, where female undergraduate, um, graduates now outnumber our men. Australian women also do comparatively well on standard health metrics vis-a-vis -vis men. In the academic literature on economic development and well-being, gender equality in health and education, what economists call human capital, is expected to translate into increased economic and political participation for women. 
In Australia, the 1970s and 1980s saw rapid transformation in these areas for Australian women. But change has been much slower over the past couple of decades. Australia's current performance on gender equality, particularly in the spaces of the economy and politics, is unacceptable. Women continue to have much lower labour force participation rates than men, 59% compared with their male counterparts. If we break this down a bit, we find that the participation rate of men and women who have children differ enormously. The participation rates of fathers remain high and their hours of work increase when they have children. But for women, participation rates plummet radically with the birth of a child and the number of hours spent in paid labour is radically reduced. In terms of work quality and pay, we find that women are disproportionately engaged in lower paid, more precarious forms of work relative to men. Only 37% of full-time employees are women. Instead, women dominate in part-time and casual work, making up 72% of all part-time employees and more than half of all casual employees. Then there's the gender pay gap. This remains stuck with very little change over the past 20 years where it's hovered between 15 and 19%. Currently, the average gender pay gap stands at around 17%, but it's much higher in the professions and also in the private sector. All this translates into women's lower levels of economic security than men, in particular lower superannuation balances. The average um, Australian woman retires with about half the superannuation balance of that as men. So these forms of inequality in the workforce are of course due to the prevailing sexual division of labour in the home. Women do the majority of the unpaid domestic labour and childcare. And this doesn't change when women enter the labour market. It certainly doesn't change very much. Time use data shows that on average women do about twice as much unpaid domestic labour as men. In business, the Australian Institute of Company Directors data show that for 2016, only 23% of directors in the ASX 200 are women. In politics, only a third of our MPs and senators are women, and female representation in the governing party room has fallen to its lowest level since Paul Keating was Prime Minister. In terms of parliamentarians and senators, the numbers do differ across the main parties. We've got 21% of Liberal MPs and senators being women, compared to 44% for Labor. So if this is the landscape in which we're thinking about improving um, gender equality, the question for tonight is whether or not the male champions of change model is able to address the complex, systemic, and pervasive forms of gender inequality that I've outlined. So I don't think so. Male champions of change certainly have considerable positional and symbolic power, but this only travels so far. They may be able to support positive change in the workplaces and institutions they lead, but the majority of Australian women are not employed in the companies led by male champions of change and they do not stand to benefit from any of the advances that are made there. So if that's a little unfair, I guess another way of thinking about the question is whether or not the male champions of change model um, can, you, can work outside those um, limited workspaces. 
Can male champions of change use their positional and symbolic power to influence Australian society at large? The answer to this question, I think, is, well, it depends. Historically, it is not elite men who have delivered gender equality. It has been regular women who have struggled over many years to finally win their freedom and their rights. Men are welcome to join the struggle, but not to define it for women. Male action needs to be based around power sharing in public life and supporting regular women's struggles for public policies that support gender equality. So if we take a current example. Why is it that the male champions of change haven't participated in the current debate around the government's proposed cuts to Australia's first and very modest paid parental leave scheme? The paid parental leave system, um, a paid parental leave system that meets the World Health Organization minimum recommendation of 26 leaves of paid leave is a critical piece of the gender equality puzzle. So male champions of change could come together, support women to push back against the proposed cuts. But so far, to my knowledge, they haven't. But I do think this is just one example of how the male champions of change positional power could be effectively deployed for gender equality beyond their own companies. And of course, the other thing that male champions of change could do would be to um, contribute half the, the shopping load, half the laundry, half the cooking and childcare in their own homes. That would be a fabulous model for what actually needs to change if we're to see progress towards substantive gender equality in Australia. Thank you. Thank you very much for that uh, wonderful speech, Deborah. I particularly enjoyed the, um, the very humble, disarming opening that you felt uh, intimidated debating against uh, an Australian of the Year. All I can say, Deborah, is I know what you're going through. I was in Melbourne last year in a debate against Pat Rafter, and it was incredibly intimidating. Um, <laughs> very, very nerve-wracking experience. Um, if I could, without further ado, call to the stage the, um, the second speaker for the affirmative team in this debate. Um, uh, th that is Associate Professor Parisa uh, Aslani, um, Associate Professor, joins us today from the pharmacy uh, faculty uh, at this university. She's an Associate Professor um, in that specialty and has been a researcher working in the field for the past 20 years. She's a presidential member of the International Federation of Pharmacists and the current president of the Austra Australasian Pharmaceutical Sciences Association, for those in the know, APSA. Um, Parissa has recently participated on the, in the inaugural Vice-Chancellor's Scholarship Program. It's a great pleasure to have her here. Please make a welcome, Parissa Aslani. Thank you. This is a far better turnout than my lectures here. So I'm really pleased to see you all, and you all look very interested. Um, you can see there are two of us from pharmacy, which tells you about gender equality in our faculty. Um, I'm here to speak more about my experiences and to talk to you about whether male champions of change are needed or not. I have been extremely lucky, both in my personal life and in my work life, and I've had several male champions of change. 
In fact, I have one at home looking after the kids as well, and he's made dinner, and he's done the um, cleaning up today. My first male champion of change has been my father. Born in Iran, um, he didn't see any issue in me having an education, in me, you know, having a career, and there was never a discussion about me being any less compared to my brother. I had to go finish school, I had to finish university, I had to get a profession where I was independent and could look after myself and progress. And since I've been at university and had a job as a lecturer, I have numerous male champions of change. I've had less women champions of change because of the environment, but I've also had women who, ha who have been barriers to progress. And so I, I have had a much better experience in terms of the male champions of change. I also view it as the male champions of change being only one component in what we need in terms of progressing gender equality. Um, it's great having programs and it's great having champions of change, but we need to look at it as a much more broad system approach where we have our legislation and policies from the government, we have our guidelines within institutions and organizations and workplaces that guide people on how to progress the gender equality. Talking about it isn't enough, but raising awareness, giving people tools, facilitating them through change is needed. And if there is a workforce or an environment where there are more male, then why not have male champions of change? Why not have them stand by the women and progress them and help them and support them and put them forward? We also need to empower the women. We also need to empower them from the home environment and we need people to be able to have that gender equality at home, whether it's coming from their fathers, supported by their mothers, whether it's coming from their partners, supported by the environment. If a woman feels empowered, sees it as a norm, and that's what they expect, they're more likely to want it in the workplace and work towards it and stand up. But again, male champions of change alone will not be enough. In order to progress our gender equality, in order to see more women at higher positions and in leadership positions, we need to be strategic and ask for everyone. So we need peoples, people champions of change. And again, I'd like to finish off by saying, while I do agree that you know, gender equality is important and key and we need male champions of change, but we need to work towards it as an organized, collaborative effort that's within the organization, tying in the home environment and starting far earlier than just being in an organizational approach. Thank you. Thank you very much for that uh, wonderful speech, Parissa. Our next uh, speaker this evening, ladies and gentlemen, is a current art student at this university. And for those of you who haven't studied arts at Sydney University, I can't emphasize enough what an incredible commitment it is. I happen to be here at the university when the arts faculty moved from a six hour teaching week to an eight and a half um, hour teaching week. And I can tell you there, was, there were rights in the streets. It was just an incredible, uh, an incredible turn of events. Um, Miss Anna Hush, who is our next speaker, um, is a current, uh, apart from studying here, current women's officer at the University of Sydney for the Student Represent Representative Council. She's been a vocal uh, advocate for institutional change across the university in relation to equality, campaigning in particular um, against harassment within the women's college, sorry, the women's collective, 
and as well for equal rights for women across campus um, at this university. She was a co-founder of a group called FemPower, uh, which is a program of workshops on feminism for high school students. She um, fits that and a range of extracurricular activities into uh, a very busy schedule, doing a lot for the advancement of equality in this country. Please make her welcome, Miss Anna Hush. team tonight have made a lot of important and I think true points about men's responsibility to take action on gender inequality. But the question today isn't should men get involved? As Perissa said, of course, everyone should get involved. The question is if calling men champions of change is really the best way to go about it. And tonight I want to contend that if we really want to accelerate change, let's let women lead the charge. So I've got two main points tonight. The first one is that a trickle-down corporate model of feminism just doesn't work. So male champions of change will never be successful in achieving or even contributing to gender equality. And secondly, that male champions of change erases women's historical success in fighting gender inequality. So to determine whether or not we need male champions of change to accelerate change, we first need to understand what kind of change we're trying to achieve. What does gender equality really look like? Although it may be tempting to think that we can quantify gender equality by the number of women on boards and in governance positions, I believe that sexism reaches much further than unequal access to leadership opportunities. As Elizabeth has shown us, gender inequality is pervasive, structural, and complex. It encompasses the devaluation of women's labor, systemic violence towards women, unconscious bias in hiring and promotion, and objectifying and degrading images of women. At the root of all of these issues is the key problem, unequal gender stereotypes. When we see women as less rational, intelligent, capable, and strong than men, all of these forms of mistreatment become justified. To achieve gender equality, then, we really need to uproot the stereotypes, both of masculinity and femininity. The problem with male champions of change is that not only does it not shatter these stereotypes, it actually reinforces them by framing men as champions and protectors and women as mere beneficiaries of male benevolence, men who have been kind enough to, as Deborah put it, open doors for women. Now, Male Champions of Change is only one program. As Parissa said, it may not be able to single-handedly undo the, all of the problems that sexism encompasses, but can it make a valuable contribution to the broad goals of feminism? Unfortunately, I think the answer is no. Because Male Champions of Change is focused on making incremental change, for example, by increasing the number of women in leadership positions, it actively conceals the ways in which we need to make deep and systemic changes in our society. It prioritizes reform over transformation, so it leaves intact the structures that have historically afforded men privilege and power. Indeed, these are the very same structures that exploit particularly vulnerable groups of women, those of big banks that give risky subprime loans to single mothers, or mining companies that are currently dispossessing indigenous women from their lands for the sake of corporate profits. When we see it from the perspective of the women at the bottom, the women who need gender equality the most, it becomes clear that the gender of the people at the helm of these companies isn't particularly relevant. Ultimately, changes to governance will predominantly benefit wealthy white women, and this is why the notion of trickle-down feminism is an illusory one. Part of the problem with male champions of change is that it assumes that men are the only ones with the power to make change. 
It fails to envision a world in which women successfully advocate, organize, and mobilize for gender equality, which is particularly ironic, I think, given that most, if not all, of the major gains that have been made in this field have been driven by women. What's more, these gains haven't been achieved by working from the top down. They've depended on grassroots collective action. I'll give you a couple of examples. In the United States, part of the Higher Education Act called Title IX has been used in the past five years to file complaints against universities for their fail failure to take action on sexual assault. These landmark cases weren't filed by professional lawyers, but young women, students who had themselves experienced sexual assault on campus. Another example, last month we saw thousands of Polish women strike and take to the streets in opposition to a ban on abortion. Just days later, their parliament overturned the ban because of this public pressure. So I think we need to ask ourselves, who's driving these changes and who really deserves the acclaim? What are we saying to these women when we give all the credit to men when they finally rubber stamp the initiatives for which women have done all the work? I'll leave you with a final example, this time a very local one. Our very own Vice Chancellor, Dr. Michael Spence, is a founding male champion of change. With a $1.4 million annual salary and executive power over the university's operations, Dr. Spence really is in the position to make the kind of transformational changes that I've been talking about. But for the many years that students have been demanding action on sexual assault at this university, we've seen very little change. Students have been left to organize and advocate for the rights of sexual assault survivors, while also juggling full-time study and waged work. This leaves me puzzled. What kind of gender equality is our Vice Chancellor being a champ champion of? I sought information on the Male Champions of Change website, but where other champions have a section about their achievements, Dr. Spencer's just says, coming soon. <laughs> I can only imagine that the kind of change he's being applauded for is the announcement earlier this year of a special task force to clean up sexism in the colleges. The media called it a crackdown and an extraordinary development. The university even threatened to strip the colleges of their land if they refused to cooperate. But six months later, we haven't heard a thing about the task force. Nothing seems to have changed. This is the story of the typical male champion of change. Big press statements, flashy language, maybe even some corporate policy initiatives, but little significance to the lives and experiences of women, especially the women who most need feminism. So perhaps Michael Spence does fit in well with the rest of the champions, but they aren't really champions of change. At best, what they are is male champions of incremental and symbolic reform. Um, thank you very much, Anna, for such a rousing and, um, and, and emotive speech. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to listen to. Um, ladies and gentlemen, of course, there were, when this debate was convened, there were a number of Australians of the year we could have approached to speak on a topic of this significance. Um, Alan Bond, uh, John Farnham, <laughs> Paul Hogan um, were, were all names that, that came to mind. But, but as fate would have it, we are blessed with the presence this evening of David Morrison, the current Australian of the Year. Uh, I jest, but on a very serious note, I, as one of the speakers has already said, have looked up to this man since I first 
um, came across him, uh, a, a video that went viral. It's not often that a video of a, a leader in the Australian military goes viral. And um, as someone who's never served uh, in that military, it uh, blew me away to see a leader of a group of people that have faced so many challenges on the, the front of gender discrimination take a stand, not gently take a stand, not take a stand that was sensitive to treading on people's long-standing sensibilities, but actually take a stand that said there is no place for any such discrimination anywhere in the Australian military, and did so with a verve and a rhetorical charge that was frankly difficult to forget. Um, since that speech went public, um, it's no secret that David has been made Australian of the Year, an incredibly well-deserving um, award. He has been appointed chair of the Diversity Council of Australia. He works in this space day in, day out, and if there is such thing as a true male champion of change in this country, he is indeed one of them. Please make him welcome, Mr David Morrison. Uh, thank you, Greg. I would like to start by asking all of the men in the audience two questions, and a show of hands will suffice by way of answer. Uh, firstly, could I get a show of hands? Well, indeed, let's be non-gender specific, so I'm opening this up to everybody. Could I see a show of hands, please, for all of those who believe that every single solution to all of the world's problems will be found by men? Right. Okay. <laughs> You're the first, and you'd better travel a little bit more with me, Greg, if you would, because that's a nice start. And then I'd like to ask just the men in the audience, how many of you have been taken to task by Elizabeth Broderick, Anne Summers, Avril Henry and Jane Carrow in the last four years of your life? Well done, sir. You carry scars like I do. And I have learned so much about life in general as a result of those four extraordinary Australians. I find myself in a difficult position as the last speaker for the affirmative. The first two speakers on my side have basically said it all. And the two speakers thus far on the negative side, I've agreed with 100%. When Jane Carrow took me to task, it was in Perth. I was speaking at a Women in Mining conference. It was a terrific engagement and I thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity that was given to me. But I said, during the course of my address, this is not about fixing women. This is not about feminism per se. This matter that is one of our great social causes in Australia, gender equality, is an issue that sits at the heart of how we want to define ourselves as a society. And I moved on to complete my address and at the end of it, the moderator for the session in Perth was Jane Carrow, and I'm not sure how many of you know Jane, but she, uh, she's not someone to leave anybody wondering. And she took me aside at the end of it and said, David, look, I appreciate what you're trying to do here. And I thought, oh, there's an encouraging start. <laughs> appreciate what you're trying to do here, but when you say these things, like you've just said, do you understand the disrespect you show to generation upon generation of Australian women who have not just kept the flame burning, but have moved the cause of women in our society forward from a very dark time to at least where we are at the moment. And I agreed with Jane completely. 
I agree with you, Anna, and you, Elizabeth, completely. There is no self-styling, however, by my fellow male champions of change as anything other than being male. Realising that to be a champion, you really just have to live to a cause bigger than yourself, whether you define that professionally or personally, and that you try and do something with this brief tenure we have on earth. I wouldn't think for one single iota of a second that any of my fellow male champions of change, nor Elizabeth Broderick, would see all the answers being found from within that group. Elizabeth, you are absolutely correct. More women enter university than men. More women gain more qualifications than men. More women, in fact, enter the, our professional workforce than men. But 10 years on, into almost every single profession, that pyramid has been inverted and men are starting to progress with their careers. I think in the past that probably was because we allowed a comfortable, middle-aged, Anglo-Saxon class of men induced by the hubris of their own careers to make decisions as to who was in and who was out. And that absolutely needs to be disrupted. As Avril Henry observes, still too much is the case in this country that men are promoted on their potential while women are promoted on their proven performance. The male champions of change simply need, have come to the realisation rather, that that needs to be disrupted. The male champions of change don't, I think, now anything other than the colours, their colours to the mask. They are certainly very cognisant of the glacial change that they are now a voice within in terms of gender equality, not just in a societal sense, but in a professional sense in this country. Nonetheless, in the five years that the Male Champions of Change organisation has existed, we have now seen the growth to well in excess of 100 male CEOs in this country. And while that is certainly not providing the answers, I don't believe that it is providing anything other than an important voice. Anna, your trickle-down approach and your concerns around it, I agree with entirely. I feel completely unqualified to be an Australian of the Year recognised as someone who has stood up for gender equality. I absolutely do believe it. And that the changes that were made in the army were something that will give me a source of pride for all of my life. But I'm here to tell you that I didn't deserve any of the accolades that I received. And I'm not using this for the sake of argument. I have expressed this view many times. All I did was kick the first pebble down the slope. What happened in terms of culture and opportunities for women inside the great national institution that is the Australian Army was solely as a result of thousands, thousands, of soldiers, men and women, recognising that a leader was prepared to create scope and opportunities, and there it was for them to fill. They are the heroes in this story from a military perspective. And the male champions of change are simply now encouraging all of those who work within their organisations, but more broadly, our society, to recognise that for far too long we have celebrated the thousands of successful 
stories around women in our contemporary age and millions upon millions over 60,000 years of habitation in a very quiet and understated way, folding it into the national narrative while we celebrate men's stories by casting them in bronze, putting them on a plinth in a public park and occasionally saluting them. That needs to change. It requires disruption. And disruption can't happen just from the top. It has to happen from the grassroots level. But you do need leaders. And at this day, at this stage in our society's development, there are more men who lead, unfairly perhaps, but as a reality. And unless those men buy in, we won't see the movements that we need to give everybody, everybody, our sons and especially our daughters, the opportunities and potential that they want to reach and attain during their lives. So if the acceleration is slow, it's still change and it's still moving in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Ladies and gentlemen, before I invite the last speaker of the debate to the uh, lectern, I just want to indicate that uh, very kindly the panellists um, after this debate have agreed to take part in a Q&A session. We are going to go a little bit Donoghue show-ish and um, there's going to be a couple of roving microphones. If anyone has any questions or comments, uh, now's not a bad time to just uh, collect your thoughts. We'll um, be doing that after the next speaker. Um, the next speaker, the final speaker for this debate is Professor Michael Flood, who hails from the University of Wollongong. He's a professor in sociology and an internationally recognised researcher on men, masculinity and violence prevention. He's made a significant contribution to both community and scholarly understanding of men's and boys' involvement in preventing violence against women. Um, his academic achievements cannot be summarised in anything approaching 10 seconds, his community involvement in this area has spanned military organisations, sporting institutions, a whole raft of community um, organisations that have benefited from his work. Please make him welcome to conclude this debate, Professor Michael Flood. You can see from that bio that I have been and am a cheerleader for the notion of men having a role to play, men having a role to play in building gender equality. And I don't think um, you know, there's anybody in the room who thinks that to make progress towards gender equality, uh, you know, we shouldn't involve men. And in fact, uh, what we've seen in Australia in gender politics has, has been what I've called a kind of turn to men, an increasing emphasis on the role men uh, can play, have to play, in building gender equality. And that's a good thing. It's a feminist achievement. It's problematic in some ways, but it's also a good thing. But in any case, the question I think these days is not whether to engage men, but how and where. And I think that uh, if we are to engage men in ways that will accel accelerate gender equality, some conditions have to be met. And I'll use the F word here, just um, so brace yourselves. This work must be feminist. Um, and I mean strongly, robustly feminist. And so I think, you know, I ask, well, what kind of feminism does the male champions of change offer? 
And I think some aspects of male champions of change offer a kind of small L liberal, individualistic, corporate feminism. It's lean in feminism, where the goal is to get more women, largely economically privileged women, into the same positions of power as men. It's not socialist feminism, raising questions about unfair economic structures. It's not radical feminism, tackling men's control of women's bodies and sexualities. It's not intersectional feminism, addressing the intersections between gender inequality and other forms of social injustice. We do need efforts to get women into the same corridors of power as men. But if that's all that gender equality means, that's a very limited vision indeed. This work must also be based on evidence, and it's true there's not been any kind of substantive evaluation of that particular strategy, and again, that's an absence. This work must be feminist. Second, this work must challenge men. It must address male privilege. And gender inequality is as much a tale, a story of male privilege, as it is a story of female disadvantage. Male privilege is personal, it's everyday, it's structural. Many men, myself included, do sexism in our everyday lives. And in fact, whether men want to or not, we're the beneficiaries of privilege. Looking at universities, in fact, looking at spaces like this, there's a mountain of evidence that work by men, or people perceived to be men, is routinely judged to be better than work by women, or uh, perceived to be by women. And that's true whether you're talking about student evaluations, or letters of recommendation, or job applications, um, and so on a whole series of ways in which uh, girls and women suffer bias while boys and men receive privilege, unearned privilege. So we have to address privilege. But too much of the work with men seems to spend a lot of time appeasing and reassuring men. It's not you, it's other men, it's those bad men. Here, have a hot chocolate. Um, <laughs> we shouldn't hand out cookies to men just for being decent human beings or for being decent leaders. We should demand that words of support are matched by action. Third, we have to involve men in processes of personal and social change. Does the Male Champions of Change program uh, invite men to critically examine their own lives, to do that work of putting their own houses in order, to address their own complicity in sexism and so on? We have to mobilise men. I'm not sure that we need to call them champions, but we definitely need men who are activists and advocates and troublemakers and so on. Much of the men work asks too little of men. Wear a ribbon. Click on a pledge, mentor a woman. That's not much of a to-do list. What about speak up about sexual harassment, lobby for paid parental leave, smash the patriarchy? Now, uh, Parissa, uh, on the affirmative, described her experience at both home and work of significant male champions, and they're heartening stories for me. That's important. And we need more, as I hope Parissa would agree. And we must appeal to men not only in terms of the women in their lives. We need to appeal to men in terms of what's right, what's fair, what's just. Champion here should not be a noun, something that you are, but a verb, something that you do. We need action. And we also know that privilege shapes men's involvement in this work itself. When men speak up about diversity in a workplace, they're listened to, they're given more credibility, they're not diminished in the way that women or, in fact, ethnic minority men are. And so that gives men power to speak up, but also we need to do so carefully. And sometimes we need to step aside. Uh, Deborah, for the affirmative, said that male champions of change welcome women into the room. That's great. Some of those men are also going to have to leave. Some of those men are going to have to leave the room. Um, um, we also have to affirm diverse ways of being a man. The male champions of change are real men. They're powerful, successful men. We also need working class men and poor men. We need men whose first language is, isn't English. We need men who pray five times a day to Mecca. We need gay and queer men. We need soft men, girly men, and big girls' blouses. 
In other words, we should affirm men who don't fit dominant codes of masculinity, dominant codes of how to be a man that are limiting to men and oppressive for women. Finally, we have to engage men in working for systems change, in tackling the material, structural and cultural factors that gender inequality is made of. A male champions of change approach risks being the male counterpart to lean-in feminism. It risks only offering support to individual women rather than collective change, collective struggle. We have to mobilise men to tackle systemic gender inequalities. If there are male champions, whether they're in suits or not, then they, then we, should be striving for change in the systems and the structures of gender inequality. Thanks. Thank you very much for that, um, that brilliant speech, Professor. Well, uh, before we have the, um, the victory by applause uh, to see who wins this debate, I will um, throw it over to the floor. Um, in in the, the very rich tradition of Australian parliamentary question time, we are going to, I believe, um, invite anyone who wants to to make their way to the lone microphone in the middle of the room. Um, and uh, I think there's a couple of roving microphones in front of um, the, the various teams on stage. If anyone has a question or a comment from the floor, um, now's your opportunity. Thank you, sir. If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself before you. Thank you. Would anyone like to respond to that comment? Now, I think there's a microphone. Um, and, and I might get someone to try to turn that microphone on. Great. Is it on? That's yeah. sounding better. Yes, thank you, Deborah. So thank you. I think it's a really important quote and points to the issue that you're talking about, the, the innocent bystander. And I think it's most important because there are many more people who are prepared to be bystanders than are those who are likely to go into the fray. And I think that's what entrenches gender inequality, that men can comfortably believe themselves to be decent human beings in terms of the way they conduct their private affairs. But when it comes to seeing injustice, not be prepared to speak up. And I think that's the big change that we need. And we need to change that idea of, of championship and of brave women who are also prepared to speak up on behalf of, of themselves um, and no longer have a university populated mostly by bystanders. Next question or comment. <laughs> Thank you very much. I enjoyed the debate immensely. Question mainly for David Morrison or who else can answer. Um, why was the strategy chosen to call it the male champions of change as opposed to just champions of change and then include um, obviously uh, powerful women as well as powerful men? Okay, so um, I wasn't uh, 
privy to the initial decision by Liz Broderick to form the group. I joined a couple of months after, in fact, about nine months after the group had been founded. But, of course, Liz is a very good friend of mine and she and I have spoken about it on a number of occasions. Her thinking, and it was her thinking, was that there was an opportunity, she felt Australia was at something of a tipping point around gender inequality or trying to redress the balance of gender inequality, and that she thought that it was uh, an opportune moment for powerful men who do have a number of significant levers to pull. How hard they pull them is, is a matter that has been debated this evening. Uh, but she decided that she would give prominence to a male voice in an area where certainly historically men's voices had been uh, muted. Now she took a lot of criticism indeed for calling it the male champions of change and indeed forming the group the way she did but uh, while I agree with, with all of the comments that have been made by the, the, uh, the side for the negative that you know the pace of under individual male champions of change or male champions of change collectively has been very slow and, and problematic. I, I still am an absolute believer in giving an opportunity for like-minded men who do want to champion, in a verb sense, champion one of these great social issues to identify themselves with a form group called at this stage the male champions of change that are recognising that men with the levers that they have got and also the positions of responsibility that they fill, giving them the opportunity to be confident that they can be part of a greater national story. Thank you, David. Uh, next question. Hi, um, thank you for an absolutely fantastic debate. Just channeling Anna a little bit and following on, actually, it was, I had a very similar question, but I just wonder, are there any women male champions of change? Uh, Cindy Hook, who is the CEO of Deloitte, uh, sits uh, with the male champions of change. Yes. Excellent. And, uh, and just, sorry, just to make the point too, I mean, Liz Broderick is the, not just the convener, uh, but uh, the iron fist in the iron glove. Um, I hope that was recorded enough for her to learn of it before the sun goes down. Uh, and there are a number of women who have been working with Elizabeth within the MCC organisation. So this has not been a group of uninformed men sitting around and telling themselves how good uh, life has been for them and, and what they that the fact that they've got all the solutions. That's not the way it's worked. That's excellent. I um, just am concerned that we're setting up another elite group for men that has a focus to help women. <laughs> so I'm delighted that there are some women in it. And wouldn't it be good if there's a lifetime, life, um, a, a defined lifetime for the male champions of change? Uh, yes, but we'd have to solve gender inequality completely. And, and just, just to close off on that, uh, the male champions of change have partnered with CEW uh, women to uh, work uh, collegiately and collaboratively for many of the causes that both organisations are absolutely focused on. Could, could I, before the, the next um, questioner, just wait there one second, just throw a question to the panel. Um, something that has struck me, courtesy of my own work and um, inquiries that I've been involved in, is just how incredibly endemic um, domestic violence is in Australia. And 
I saw Kevin Rudd when he was Prime Minister give a speech at the White Ribbon Ball in Sydney probably about six or seven years ago now going through the statistics and um, it, it, it was so embarrassing and shameful sitting there listening to stats about, for example, the percentage of women in Australia who were the subject of domestic violence while pregnant. And, um, and there was barely a dry eye in the house when that speech ended and he told the story of um, a lady, a recent victim, that he'd spent some time with. Can I ask those of you on stage who, and I know some of you have worked extensively in, in this space, um, how hard is it getting politicians to pay attention to an issue that on any score should rank arguably well beyond the budget that we might allocate to terrorism or um, other aspects of our life in the community that, that might be regarded as fashionable in a budgetary sense. How difficult is it to get po politicians to take notice and to actually allocate the, the time, resources and energy towards trying to make the, the, the problem not go away but meaningfully better? Um, I'll speak to that. It's very difficult to get politicians to do what you've described. It's not very hard. It's not hard at all in some ways to get politicians to take uh, merely symbolic and superficial action. So if you want a politician, for example, to merely wear a white ribbon, that's very easy. But if you want a politician to actually address the social and structural supports for domestic or family violence or sexual violence, for example, by not defunding women's legal centres or by addressing homelessness, uh, that's much harder. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think there's a nice parallel. Um, I mean, it's too simplistic, but I think the same uh, challenges or dilemmas are visible around, say, the issue of men's violence against women and public and community attention to that issue in the sense that, uh, you know, there's been attention to the role men can play in addressing domestic and family violence, and I think that's fantastic, and the White Ribbon campaign, for example, is defined by that focus on the positive role men can play, but it too risks a kind of tokenism, a kind of excessive praise for, or reassurance to men in, um, instead of, uh, genuine personal and social change. So I think that exactly the same dilemmas in some ways um, in the, say, white ribbon violence against women space and the male champions of change gender inequality space. David, would you like to add something to that? Look, I, I really agree strongly with what you've just said. I, you know, I'm an ambassador for white ribbon as well, but I'm also on the, 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 the board of Our Watch, which uh, sits at federal and state government level. And um, what, what you've just said, Michael, is... is very, very true. I mean, the, the causes of domestic violence are just so complex, but I think that one of the foundational issues is that it stems from gender inequality. And so, to your point, uh, why aren't we tackling not just uh, uh, you know, legal uh, support for women or for homeless women or for women affected through domestic violence, what are we doing to target the number of women represented in uh, various uh, parliaments around Australia? I mean, it's only within the last month and a half that a target has been set by one particular political party. Uh, do you know how long it is since Federation? No, it's 116 years. So, um, you know, these are big issues that go... They are so intrinsically linked and I, I, but, but I wouldn't for one moment want an organisation like White Ribbon to step out of this because a bit like the male champions of change, they don't have all the answers. 
and they are a voice that is very male in this, but it's a male voice that hasn't been heard until relatively recently, and that can, in my view, only help. I just want to add um, to this, in the, and by drawing our vision out a little wider, because the thing that's really struck me in the last year about um, the, the, uh, the debate around domestic violence and the catastrophic um, data that we have um, is that it seems to me that people aren't joining the dots. So domestic violence just doesn't happen out there in its own little ecosystem. It is fundamentally linked to the way in which we value women in our everyday lives, in the economy, in politics, in our workplaces. And so if you're if you're a woman and you see, for example, in the current context of budget repair, you see our Prime Minister, who calls himself a feminist, um, making a choice, it would appear, um, certainly the choice when the rich old men with massive superannuation accounts, who have already been privileged in the labour market, accumulated massive superannuation accounts, taken the, the benefits of superannuation um, tax concessions, when they start crying uh, about the unfairness of those changes, we see the current government giving back some of that. And so $400 million is being given back to those wealthy men. At the same time, on account of the need for budget repair, we've got that same government making a choice to cut, the figures are a little bit fuzzy at the moment because um, the current minister has changed the, 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 um, the details of the paid parental leave system a little, but between one and $1.2 billion, taking it away from working Australian mothers. Now, the, these dots need to be joined. The, the woman question is not settled in Australia, and we see this over and over again. This is just the latest current um, of the moment kind of example. So I think until we start to join the dots and make those links between the way in which women are fundamentally devalued in their homes, in their workplaces, and left with constrained choice, we're not going to see much of a shift in the abhorrent stats around domestic violence. Our next question comes from uh, a current student at the university who's obviously enjoying his time here. I see he's got a hoodie on that reads, Sydney Uni Ultimate. Um, I presume the words is the, uh, it just can't be read, they're in a small. Uh, no, it's the ultimate frisbee, the sport. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Um, if you wouldn't mind firing in with your question or comment. Um, I just want to say thank you to everyone involved this evening. Um, this is uh, not really well formed in my head, so I'm just going to try and get it out there. Um, uh, equality is sort of a fuzzy concept and it can be harder to, to define and look at. Um, the, one of the things that uh, I sort of struggle with, uh, particularly uh, the last couple of weeks, and you alluded to Donald Trump, is that uh, he has had at least 10, I think it's probably up to 15, uh, different women come forward to say, hey, uh, this guy assaulted me, this guy grabbed me, uh, and his own words have sort of backed that up. Um, it's not really a question, but uh, it sort of seems like that doesn't matter. Uh, he's still the leading nominee for one of the major American political parties, uh, and he's going to get a bunch of votes. Um, and that is sort of sickening. Uh, and I really just kind of want to know what does the future look like uh, where that's not... Uh, 
I don't even know how to phrase it. What does the future for equality look like uh, and how do we get there and sort of the time scale there? Because, yeah, it seems like we've sort of been chugging along at that for a long time and none of these things apparently matter. Great. What was your name? Uh, my name is Andy. Andy, thanks so much for that comment. Could I put that comment to the panel and say this, that um, global markets have spiralled today. today. Anyone who follows markets will have seen on the back of news overnight that Donald Trump is now, on some polls, the favourite to win the US election. Um, how petrifying is it to all of you who are so active in this space that we might be 10 or 9 days away from having the most powerful person on the planet be someone who could only ever be described as uh, an enemy of equality and um, feminism? Uh, look, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling, isn't it, in so many ways. But look, in, in relation to Andy's question in particular about someone who has essentially described sexually assaulting behaviour uh, being, you know, a credible candidate for president, I mean, it's an extraordinary situation, but it's not, it's not some kind of American idiosyncrasy that we can dismiss as, you know, those strange um, yanks. It's also, I think it's a symptom of a kind of broader uh, kind of tolerance for violence against women that is part of Australian culture and other... Cultures, what you know, what what feminist writers and activists would call a rape culture, where um, violence against women and support for violence against women is marginalised and dismissed and made invisible, and that's true in popular film and advertising and in presidential speeches and so on. So, in a sense, we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that um, that commentary and that behaviour, you know, doesn't demolish um, Trump's presidential chances. In terms of what the future looks like, though, I don't want to be too pessimistic because there are signs of both progress and regress. This forum and the evidence, for example, from national surveys in Australia tells, it that, tells us that there have been important shifts towards gender equality in terms of uh, women's and, to a lesser extent, men's support for basic ideals of gender equality. And it's uneven. There's been more support for the notion that women should participate in politics and economic life, less progress when it comes, for example, to the intimate realm of um, sexuality and relationships. And so there's progress, there's also regress. I would say that among young men, one significant influence that's pushing young men backwards is actually pornography. Pornography which, in large part, teaches men, I think, a really callous and hostile view of women and women's bodies. So we can point to things that I think are encouraging and things that are really depressing as well. As to the future, I don't know, but I certainly don't want to offer some kind of rosy view that it's all going to get better despite these upsets. I think it's only, um, as Anna described, collective struggle and collective effort that will, that will make a positive difference. Thank you for breaking that news so gently. Um, I think we've got time for two final quick questions. I'll um, hand it over to you. Um, my name's Julia Newbold and I run the Stiller Network for BT Financial Group. And my question is for David and about the male champions of change. And I just wonder, do you sign, it up, do you sign up for life on it? Or do you sign up year by year and you have to prove yourself that you've earned that position in the year or you boot it out? Gee, I wish Liz Broderick was here. <laughs> it's a really good point, isn't it? No, it's, it's much more uh, unstructured than that. Um, I was asked to join fairly early on in my time as, as the Chief of Army and, and have stayed a male champion of change. I offered to leave when my tenure as the Chief was coming to an end because I, I felt that, you know, 
what really the male champions of change were about were leading organisations and having a direct correlation with changes inside particular work environments. Uh, but I've been, I was asked to stay on, I was delighted to be asked, and it has since broadened. So there are, if you like, subgroups within the male champions of change now that are trying to find ways of increasing women's participation in various STEM subjects at school and at university, and of course, then uh, a further career. Around uh, data, though, uh, by which uh, organisations can and their leaders can be held to account, that absolutely does happen, and it's published. And so there is no uh, obscurating uh, the fact that some organisations under, if you like, a particular leader, have been more successful in the areas that the male champions of change have decided to focus on. And that is information that is readily available on uh, websites and uh, goes to the heart of one of Liz Broderick's ideas around the male champions of change, which was getting a group of powerful and competitive men around a particular table where they saw progress being made in other organisations and not just like organisations would be a powerful change agent in itself and I think it has albeit that progress has not been uniform and indeed in some areas has seen probably uh, less than ideal results. So uh, hopefully I've answered the question as best I can but nobody is trying to simply say you know it's, it, uh, I'm a male champion of change and therefore I can't be questioned. It's not like that at all. It's very open and very transparent, and progress, when it is slow, is seen as just that. And I take it from that answer, David, there's no formal performance review every 12 months? Uh, not a formal performance review, but um, when you sit, as I have done, around a table where your organisation is shown in many areas to be lagging, not much needs to be said. <laughs> it's very informal. OK, final question. Yes, thank you. Hi, um, thank you all for being here, it's really cool. Uh, <laughs> my name is Christina and I actually studied here and now I work at the Fred Hollis Foundation. And um, in various roles I've had in development, I've found that um, men who are working in development who actually have access to the communities in which the most marginalized women in the world live often are tired and overworked and see gender as just another area of paperwork, documentation and compliance. So how do we get them to feel actually connected and care about gender equality on a personal level, rather than just saying a cultural shift? Uh, thanks for that question. Um, so mainstreaming the development agenda, that's really your question is around in that space, yeah? The way in which it's been mainstreamed into the development um, industry, yeah? Just facilitating gender equality yeah, work yeah. in development. Um, so in the development world, um, the whole idea of gender equality, women's economic empowerment, all these words are used over and over and over again. It's become very much, as you say, a ticker box exercise. It's yet another thing that community workers, ground level workers are required to do and often without adequate training. Um, and again, it's a, it's, it's a problem that reflects this top-down approach, you know, whether it's governments through bilateral aid programs, UN through multilateral aid, aid programs. Um, 
they're delivering this kind of message from the top and asking for it to be um, administered at, at, at the bottom level. I think one of the problems that you're, we're also identifying in your question is that again, you know, why are men working in women's, you know, in the communities with, with women? You know, it, the best practice, the literature tells us very clearly, it should be women working with women. It has to be, be grassroots. Um, orientated. So I think you're identifying a real, a really significant problem within a particular sector um, and there's a lot of critique around that and I'm not sure the answer or the response to that is to help the men feel better about fitting that into their work day. I think there's a fundamental problem with the actual model and the way in which mainstreaming is delivered in the development space. Could I just add a comment in response to what's a really interesting question? One of the things that I've seen when I was researching the, the speech we're giving today is that often when men become part of change, it's because there's, there are women in their life that they care about and relate to, and they see the impact of, of inequality on people who matter to them. Um, the example um, in Pennsylvania was somebody whose sister and sister-in-law were both good students and he went ahead and set up a women's medical school because there wasn't one for them. So it's when I think men see inequality and it pulls at their own heartstrings about people who they care about. And if you have men in your working in your organisation, then it's probably important if they don't have people suffering inequality in their own lives that they meet some of the people and understand um, what they're facing. And I know that they're busy and, and, and overworked in those sort of organisations. There's not a lot of funding, but I think it's really important to, that they spend time with the women and relate to them so that there is a personal story about why inequality for women matters and why making a difference can really change things. Can I just make a comment on that, but also sort of extend it? I think what we're asking is behavioural change, a shift in attitude, a shift in behaviour. Behavioural change takes a while, and we have to have a multi-pronged approach to it. And one of the things that we can think about is increasing awareness at the primary school level, at where kids can become aware of what is, you know, an extension to bullying, what is actually specific bullying against girls in school versus boys. There is an ad, I think, on TV that you would have seen about this. It's not cool to hit a girl, I think. And I think that causes conversations and that causes awareness and that helps build knowledge, build change attitudes and cause this behavioural shift. If we want a permanent behavioural change from a public health perspective, awareness and education and constant message at all levels is really what we should be aiming for, and maybe we should have some younger male champions of change at a more local level rather than at a higher CEO powerful level as well. Thank you. Thanks, Parisa. Well, I think that concludes the, the Q&A, and I think now it's time for the moment of truth. I'll ask um, members of the audience, before we thank all of our um, six debaters, to those of you who believe the affirmative won this debate, the team closest to me, um, successfully affirmed the uh, proposition that we do need more male champions of change. Please give them a round of applause right now. And those who believe that the negative team were victorious in this debate, please give them a round of applause.
Well, um, we almost need the third umpire. The, um, the, the, the result is as close as the Melbourne Cup was yesterday, but um, I think by the narrowest of uh, margins, the, the debate is won by the negative. Please thank all our six speakers. And to conclude the formal part of this evening, I'll invite back to the stage Trevor Hambly just for some closing remarks. Thanks, Greg. I'm not quite sure what to say after that. Um, I had some notes, but I'm just not going to use them. Um, adding anything, the, the discussion, the debate, um, the issues that we raised and discussed, um, that was just amazing. Um, what I will say, though, is I don't think I've ever seen a debate where there was so much agreement. <laughs> and I picked out a few things which I think are important where there was agreement. Um, there was agreement that what we need is not incremental change, but systemic and societal change, and we need it quickly. Um, that we need men to be involved, we need men to help lead, uh, but not to define the path. Um, that if we're going to use the term champions, it needs to be seen as a verb, and it needs to be seen as a verb from the actions. And that if we do need male champions to change, that we need to make that term unnecessary as quickly as we possibly can. So I would just like to thank you for all attending, uh, um, ask you to fill out the surveys that you've got on your seats, and then please join us in the quad. It's going to be a lovely evening out there, and we've got uh, drinks and canapes, so please do join us. And then finally, thank, join with me in thanking Greg and the panel for a wonderful debate.